Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. A good Monday to you, and thanks for joining us here on the show. Jespo and Infamous with you. Good morning. Another beautiful July morning. How was your weekend, pal? It was... I'm not going to lie. I'm a little tired. We're, we're yeah. getting this show ready for Wednesday, and I'm trying to get all the bells and whistles on it so it's just beautiful for you. Of course, Sapria and Ryan launching. Seriously, I can't wait. Yeah, coming up July 20th. That's this Wednesday. I had uh, a few people come up to me and ask me about it. One in particular yesterday, I was uh, picking up. I'm going to tell you a little bit more about this during the official mention, but I was picking up a couple of fresh, hot, made-to-order pizzas at Friesen Brothers, and somebody comes up to me and says, what time will I be able to catch seriously on Wednesday? And I said, thank you very much, first of all. Um, it's uh, You can subscribe to it anywhere you get your podcast. Just You can go to seriouslypod.com and check it out. Uh, it's not a live show, so it'll be available Wednesdays. We release it like most podcasts. Mm-hmm. Most podcasts, and as a matter of fact, almost all podcasts are released like that. Yeah. It's very rare to do what Real Talk does, which this is, one is special. be available live streaming yeah. and then available later. So seriously, you'll be out on Wednesdays. Sapria Devetti and myself, about a half hour every week, taking a look at the top national news stories and, 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 and sort of a heavy focus on federal politics. Yeah. But we'll see how it all plays out. We want to be talking about what people are talking about, but making sense of it. We announced it just this last Wednesday, and it's yeah. been awesome to see the buzz around it. We appreciate it. And you are busting your ass I'm to get us ready. I, I want to do it now so I don't have to problem solve later. <laughs> but also, I like how you're doing it pre-recorded because we want to make sure it's 25 to 30 minutes you want to get all your info quick yeah bang 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 right at you and make you uh, smarter for the week it's the podcast for your commute for your dog walk we know that your time is precious and so so that's how we're going to do it so yeah it's, it's been a busy weekend we're really excited about that as we continue to grow the reach grow the audience and uh sort of interact with more canadians Every single day, which is a pretty sweet uh, privilege and a great opportunity. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I just received an email. You can reach us anytime. By the way, let me quickly say, in about five minutes' time, we're going to be talking to two members of a task force. It was a national task force that was uh, essentially asked to take a look at the impact of the pandemic of COVID-19 on Canada's intensive care units, on ICUs across the country. And uh, Dr. Noel Gibney reached out to me. He, he did uh, a lot of his medical training at a place you might have heard of in the United States, as a matter of fact, called Harvard Medical School. He's a graduate of <laughs> Harvard Medical School. And he reached out and he said, hey, listen, he says there's this this uh, entire group of us that's just pushed out this report. Uh, we've linked to it to make it easy for you to find. If you we know a lot of you want to dig into the details, you want to see all the graphs and the charts and the background data. And so that's available for viewing. If you check out our uh tweet uh, every single weekday morning we tweet from our account at real talk rj and i've published the link to that report so you can read along with us if you like but dr gibney reached out said that uh, himself and his colleague melanie goche who's an instructor at mcgill university in their school of nursing says we'd love to come on and talk about this of course this is related to my conversation last week with mm-hmm. united conservative party leadership candidate danielle smith a lot of people are saying she's the likely winner of this leadership contest You don't want to make these proclamations from this chair this early in the race, but it would appear that she's gleaning a lot of the necessary support, the support she's going to need to to secure the leadership of that party, which will make her 
Alberta's next premier. And she made the assertion last week. You probably heard it. Uh, we've had a ton of feedback around it. A lot of people have been talking about it. I don't know if you saw Johnny over the past few days, but they wrote about that interview on Real Talk in mm-hmm. the Globe and Mail, which was awesome to see. And then, of course, a lot of other websites as well. AlbertaPolitics.ca had a column on it. If you subscribe to our Sunday message, our Sunday emails, which is free, and you can do it just by scrolling to the bottom of the page, our homepage at RyanJesperson.com. You know I link to those articles for you. Dr. Gibney reached out and said that after Danielle Smith said that she believed that Alberta Health Services in the context of scaling up ICU capacity was either incompetent or trying to sabotage the conservative government, uh, Dr. Gibney said we need to have a more frank conversation about this. So we've been waiting for the past few days uh, to have a chance to talk to him and uh, and Melanie Goche. So that'll be a good conversation coming up. Of course, the Titan of Talk every Monday joins us. Charles Adler. He's been showing off this new microphone that he got on Twitter. I don't know if you noticed. He went and bought <laughs> Better a big... Better be good. Yeah, I'm, so I'm looking forward to that. So Chuck will join us in you know approximately half an hour's time, and we'll get to the, the news of the day, the stories of the day. You can be in touch with us anytime by way of our email inbox, uh, talk at ryanjesperson.com. And Colleen just got an email in about 15 minutes ago, and, and I checked it right before we went live. Colleen says, Jespo, I don't know if you do this, uh, she says, but my husband's a huge fan of your show, and it's his birthday today. Ooh. And I was wondering if you could give a give Darren a shout out for his 40th birthday. She says, we love the show. Have a great day. That from Colleen. Unfortunately, Colleen, we don't do birthday shout outs. So I cannot. <laughs> just so I can't just look right into the camera and wish Darren a fan of the show, which makes him automatically a friend of mine, a very happy 40th birthday. Uh, unfortunately, we can't wish him well over the next year. Heaps of blessings, good health and great fortune. Unfortunately, we can't take time out of the show to specifically wish Darren a very happy 40th birthday. But thanks for asking anyway. We'll try next time. We appreciate it. We'll try harder next time. <laughs> Uh, but of course, whatever's floating your boat, whatever's on your mind, we do want to hear from you and you can get in touch with us. Don't forget, every month we give away our, our Real Talk email of the month prize. Uh, we're getting set to award that, by the way. We mm-hmm. have a couple of them locked and loaded, and that means that somebody gets a free official Real Talk studio mug uh, at least once a month. So that's good. This is a big week in Alberta, uh, in Western Kids. As a matter of fact, it's a big week for the country uh, because the Pope is coming to visit, and that will extend sort of. Over this next weekend, uh, into the next Monday and Tuesday, there's been a lot of reporting on what the schedule looks like. There's a, a pilgrimage, uh, so to speak, up to Lac St. Anne. And, of course, the Pope will be delivering an apology for the Catholic Church's role in residential schools. It was one of the things that the uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission called for. Uh, and it's it's something that, of course, was lobbied when, when Chief Fulton Littlechild and the delegation, including journalist Brandy Morin, who told us about it, uh, that trip to the Vatican back on April 7th when she joined us on the show. This was one of the big things, one of the one of the more significant steps that people said the church can take uh, as an act of reconciliation. And so the Pope is coming to Canada, as you know, just a few days from now, uh, if you're listening to this on July 18th, that's today, or at some point in the next few days, this visit is looming. Our Friday roundtable, our Real Talk roundtable, we're dedicating that to the papal apology and so we're working on uh and we've confirmed a couple of guests that i'm really looking forward to speaking with people that are what do you say authorities in this field people that have lived experience intergenerational survivors it's a conversation a difficult one and it's also prompted some feedback from from audience members and when we say we appreciate your emails your feedback to the show we sure mean it 
And this one from Shane was one that I wanted to put out there. Shane says, you know, regarding this upcoming papal visit, the Pope coming to Masquachis, uh, this is about uh, halfway between Edmonton and Red Deer, uh, large community uh, reserved just outside of Wetaskiwin. You remember Wetaskiwin's mayor, Tyler Gandam, joined us on Friday. I was talking about reconciliation, among many other things, and community building. It was a good conversation. So Shane says, you know, some of the roads and the infrastructure in and around that First Nations community are in such a state of disrepair. They're impassable. Like emergency vehicles that are trying to assist people during life and death emergencies have a tough time just making their way down the road. And local first responders and citizens have been asking, begging for years Uh, to the federal government in particular, for this to be addressed, for these roads to be properly fixed for years. Yet nothing of significance was ever accomplished. And then suddenly, after the Pope's visit was confirmed, the roads, the infrastructure projects commenced immediately, including paving all of the roads that the Pope's tour will follow. Uh, Some of these are the very same roads that first responders have been struggling to navigate for years. Shane doesn't say in the email that he's a first responder, but it sure sounds like it. I don't want to make an assumption, but it sounds like it. He goes on to say, this is disgustingly ironic, isn't it? That this infrastructure is finally being fixed because of a one-hour visit by an old white Catholic man who's coming in the name of reconciliation while local indigenous people apparently weren't worthy of having safe and passable roads prior to his visit. Disgraceful. That from Shane. That's where Shane's coming from. Not everybody's disgusted by the visit. Many people, including many indigenous people, have gone on the record and said this is very meaningful. This is very significant. We want to know where you're at with it. And, of course, we'll be integrating your comments into our content, into our shows of the next few days. But also, of course, leading up into Friday's roundtable discussion, we want to make sure we have plenty to talk about there. And that includes feedback from the people that join us, the community, the audience here. That is real talk. We'll talk about Canada's ICUs in just a second. I wanted to remind you that Athabasca University is Canada's online university. There's no better time than right now to take that degree program, that master's program. Now is the best time. You can go to AthabascaU.ca for more information. Why is Athabasca University a great option? Well, you can study anytime. You can study anywhere. Take as little or as much time as you need to complete the course or program that interests you. Athabasca U is as flexible as you need them to be. And of course, it's summer. It's the middle of summer. So you have a vacation coming up? No worries. You're in charge of your schedule, so you will not miss an exam. And more importantly, probably you won't be studying the entire time that you're away. That's a big deal. Our friends at Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge, another busy weekend for them, no doubt. They're... Of course, the destination uh, for people across the prairies. I mean, they see some out-of-province visitors that are coming in because their inventory is unmatched, in part because the dealerships share ownership so they can look to both lots to make sure that they find the perfect fit for you, whether that's the brand-new Ram 1500 TRX with its 700-plus horsepower. There's nothing it can't pull. Or maybe something a little more fuel efficient. Maybe you're looking to downsize. You're watching your wallet. The teams at Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge are ready to find you your perfect fit. You'll find them under the Sponsors tab on our website. And our friends at Apex Automation are putting out the call to engineers across the country. If you're looking to maximize your potential, if you're looking to achieve great things, if you're looking for a workplace that celebrates and supports its 
people, Apex Automation could be your next career move. They're providing intuitive, fully autonomous solutions to industry. They are giving people back their time. You can learn more about what they're doing in automation, fabrication, engineering by visiting apexautomation.ca. Well, in just a moment, we're going to get to Dr. Noel Gibney and Melanie Gauthier, RN, uh, to tee up this conversation, to provide some context. We wanted to play a quick clip from an interview I had last week with Danielle Smith. She wants to lead Alberta's United Conservatives. She wants to be Alberta's next premier. And she had something to say, some pretty heavy words, criticism aimed at Alberta Health Services, in particular its former CEO, Verna Yu. This is Danielle Smith on Real Talk. We have to uh, challenge Alberta Health Services. They are, are either incompetent or that, they, or they went out of their way to sabotage the UCP government. I watched the fr- very first press conference that the Premier gave back in, in March or, or April, where he gave direct instruction to Alberta Health Services to increase the number of ICU beds by 1,089. And then I think everybody was going along thinking they were working on finding that surge capacity. Then when the Delta variant came along last fall, we found out that not only had they not increased ICU beds, they had decreased them. And I've just a lot of time talking to frontline nurses and doctors, especially in rural areas. And they told me that their um, facilities were empty. So Alberta Health Services, I think, let us all down by failing to find that surge capacity. We gave them lots of money, lots of time. And I think that that's where we should be focusing our effort. You don't really think that Alberta Health Services was trying to sabotage the government, do you? I don't know how to interpret it any other way. All I do know is that Dr. Verno Yu was let go a month, a year before her uh, ex- her contract extension was up. So somebody's come to the same conclusion I has that she just wasn't up for the job. Yeah, someone trying to save his own political skin, probably. Don't you think? I mean, that's what prompted this entire leadership no. race. I, I look at the facts and the facts are they uh, were given a direct instruction to increase surge, surge capacity and they failed. They reduced uh, surge capacity or they reduced ICU capacity. And that's unacceptable. There you go. So a lot of people are talking uh, in a number of different directions on the impact of that comment, including whether or not it's it's accurate. Uh, our next two guests were named to a task force that put together a report. It's just been released uh, at the very end of June, the COVID-19 pandemic, the impact on Canada's intensive care units. Uh, Dr. Noel Gibney uh, was born, raised, and schooled in Ireland. He trained in pulmonary medicine at the University of Alberta, critical care medicine at Harvard Medical School. He's practiced in all the ICUs in the Edmonton Zone hospitals between 1982 and 2018. He was the medical director of critical care in Edmonton, a former board member of the Alberta Medical Association and STARS Air Ambulance. And he's still teaching as a professor emeritus in the Department of Critical Care Medicine at the U of A. Melanie Gauthier hails from Montreal, Quebec. She completed her undergrad degree in nursing at McGill, a master's in intensive care nursing from the University of Sydney, In Australia, she holds a CNA certification, that's critical care nursing. Uh, She practiced as a critical care nurse for a decade before taking on a position as a university faculty lecturer position, and she's past president of the Canadian Association of Critical Care Nurses. Basically, what I'm saying is these two know what the hell they're talking about. Uh, I really appreciate the both of you joining me this morning. Dr. Gibney, it was you that that reached out to me originally and passed along this report. I read it uh, the minute you did, and I appreciate it. Uh, Candidly speaking... Uh, Ms. Smith's comments on the show last week. Why did they resonate so strongly with you? What was it that she said uh, that prompted you to reach out to us? Uh, Thanks very much, uh, Ryan, for the opportunity to uh, talk to you today. Um, My my concern is is, is that her statements were entirely inaccurate and and clearly 
misinformed. I, I believe that uh, when Premier Kenny gave the instruction to increase ICU beds by 1,089 in 2020, again, he simply didn't understand anything about ICU. Clearly, I suspect that uh, Ms. Smith likewise has very little understanding of ICU, uh, of the complexities involved and the staffing required. Uh, an ICU bed is of no value without a fully trained ICU healthcare professional team. And, and you can have thousands of beds, but if you don't have the team that knows what to do for patients in those beds, they're really of, of, of no value. And uh, as, as I'm sure Melanie will tell you, uh, it requires very significant staffing uh, to staff 1,089 beds. And, and, and certainly during the, the, the pandemic, to, to my knowledge, because I've kept close contact with my colleagues, ICU beds were in no way diminished in Alberta. They, they were, in fact, increased by as much as the staff would allow. And, and certainly uh, at, at its peak during that Delta wave, uh, we got up into the 300s uh, of ICU beds, which is almost a 100% increase over the baseline. But that required using staff that were not adequately trained in ICU, but were supervised by ICU staff at the time. And uh, by doing these kinds of uh, extraordinary things, we, we, we got through, but, but not before Alberta, Saskatchewan and Manitoba actually had to transfer uh, ICU patients to Ontario and bring in uh, nurses and uh, other professionals from uh, the Canadian Armed Forces. So, I mean, there's no question we were under intense strain during this pandemic. Melanie, this is uh, this pandemic over these past you know two years, two and a half years. Uh, I think probably for most Canadians has been an opportunity to to at least endeavor to better understand how our healthcare system operates and 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 how uh, pressures or stresses can acutely impact the healthcare system. Would you say that the average person, I mean, in, unless you had the horrible misfortune of of being involved in a motor vehicle accident or somebody's health had taken a horrible turn for the worst, the majority of people wouldn't maybe two and a half years ago been able to say, uh, to identify the difference, let's say, between an ICU and an ER, as an example. Would you agree? I mean, have most Canadians scaled up their understanding of ICUs over the past two years? I think they now have an understanding or they're aware that this exists, that nurses have different specializations, uh, that we do specialize in different areas. So an ER is not the same as an ICU, but I'm not quite sure uh, everyone understands really the complexity of the care that's provided in these environments, unless you actually become either a patient or have a close family member um, be hospitalized in an ICU. So I think we have made some advances, but I, I do believe that um, there is still a lot of misunderstanding as to the complexity of uh, these environments, but also the training that's required of these critical care nurses, like how much training and education they need in addition to their basic education that they get uh, in nursing school. Um, and the length of time it actually takes to prepare a critical care nurse. In a lot of the provinces, it takes up to six months to train a nurse to become an ICU nurse. And so um, if we're asking to go up on beds, a thousand beds, that takes time. Um, and it would also take, it needs a nurse. You actually need to be a nurse and be have your, uh, your license to do that. And so clearly we do have a nursing shortage in Canada. We had it prior to the pandemic. Uh, and now it's only gotten worse. So where do you get these nurses to train 
to go into an ICU? That's that's kind of the question. Um, so I do think that you know there there is a better understanding, but I think there's still a lot of gaps that are missing. I think that um, there's still a misunderstanding of the the complexity of the care that we provide in these ICUs for sure. Do, I mean, do we also need to acknowledge, Melanie, that, that many nurses may have zero interest in becoming ICU nurses? I mean, especially if you look at the strain on the system, the way that ICU nurses, doctors, and other staff were being treated. I mean, the stress that came along with it, the the political posturing that was happening through the pandemic. I mean, can you talk about the significance or maybe the challenge of attracting people to even be remotely interested in doing that? Absolutely. I mean, it's very, it's a very challenging environment. Um, we do work very closely as a team. So there is a you know, the, the, the teamwork in a critical care setting is, is usually great when, when obviously the team works well together. Um, so absolutely, there's, there are some significant challenges. It's very difficult. Uh, it's a very difficult job. It's a very challenging job uh, from just on, on the perspective of, you know, who you're caring for. Like these patients are, are critically ill. It can be quite difficult um, situations. And uh, there's very life-threatening illnesses, right? And that's hard to deal with. It's, it's difficult, um, very demanding to support patients and their families in these environments. So it's not for everyone. Um, so absolutely, a nurse that works in, in a medical unit, a surgical unit, she may not be, she or he may not be interested to come to, to work in a critical care unit. And a lot of them were actually forced to during the pandemic. Uh, they were redeployed to these environments. And some of them may have realized that they actually liked it and others probably realized that they never want to do that again. Dr. Gibney, we, uh, as mentioned, tweeted out the link to this full report that that both of you are, are co-authors on, along with some other esteemed colleagues, certainly. And uh, I think, you know, it paints a pretty star. I mean, it paints a, a compelling picture, but a concerning picture about the impact that the pandemics had on intensive care units across the country. Uh, to be very clear, we're not just talking about Alberta. We're taking a look across the country uh, in layperson's terms, in terms that the average person uh, can understand what has been the impact of, of COVID-19 on Canada's ICUs. The, the impact has been immense uh, across the country. It, one of the challenges that we had in preparing the report is it's actually very difficult to get information on the exact numbers. We, we have information from a, an earlier period of, of the pandemic from the Canadian Institute of Health Informatics. And, and we're looking basically at tens of thousands of patients who ended up in ICU with a mortality of about 20% of those patients died in the ICU, usually after a very long stay, very traumatic for the patient and for their families. And, and the impact on both the, the patients, the families, and the staff has been huge. One of the, the real challenges that, that I think the report brings out is that even before the pandemic, we have really been challenged in the ICUs around the country because we, we simply haven't got enough staff or enough beds. And we've been running, at the best of time, anywhere 90 to 100% occupancy, so that when winter pressures come from flu, whatever, we, we, we've been over capacity and, and that's caused huge challenges at the pandemic. And, and that really was the, uh, what would I say, the, it, it, it placed immense uh, pressures to, to some extent that, uh, as we mentioned before, that patients had to be transferred from the Prairie provinces, Alberta, Saskatchewan and Manitoba to Ontario, where they have more capacity. 
But also, I think that Ontario managed the uh, pandemic much better than the prairie provinces that typically were slow to bring on the uh, public health measures to try and reduce uh, infection in the community, and then typically um, remove those uh, public health measures too early. And, and uh, again, if we look at uh, figure two of the report, you can see that the Prairie provinces also had the highest number of hospitalizations and also the highest number of ICU admissions. While if you look at Alberta, it, it's, it, it has the second lowest number of beds uh, in Canada uh, for ICUs. And, and, and so the, the pressure was intense by virtue of having the highest number of very sick patients in the Prairie provinces, and at the same time having some of the lowest numbers of ICU beds. What What is it about, and, and I guess to, to a certain degree, doctor, you may have uh, answered the question, but I want to dig into that a little bit because I want to reiterate it. I want us to focus on that. And, and Melanie, maybe you first, and, and I'll encourage you both to jump in here. But if you look at this, I mean, the source of this is COVID-19tracker.ca, and you can see uh, the number of hospitalizations per million, the number of ICU per million disproportionately higher in the Prairie Provinces. Manitoba with the most per capita, followed by Alberta, followed by Saskatchewan. Then it's Quebec. Then there's the national average. And then BC, New Brunswick, Ontario, Nova Scotia. And the numbers drop, drop, drop. I guess Prince Edward Island deserves maybe a pat on the back if I'm reading the numbers correctly. But but what can we glean from this? What was it about Manitoba, Alberta, and Saskatchewan that saw the hospitalizations so much higher than anywhere else in the country? I think the difference, Ryan, was, was that in in most of the other provinces, the pandemic was considered to be a public health and medical issue. In the Prairie Provinces, it became very much more of a political issue uh, as, as well as having medical and public health issues. And I, I think it was just the, it was the combination of the, the, the political side where it became very difficult for the Premier, for the Health Minister, for uh, Dr. Hinshaw to implement the measures in a timely manner and to keep them in place for long enough to, to make a significant difference. And I mean, I think we see that still playing out with uh, Premier Kenny's resignation and now the political battle to choose the next leader of the UCP, where this has come to the forefront again. And uh, it, it really, I think, would have been much better from a medical point of view, public health point of view, if we hadn't had such significant political overtones in the prairie provinces. Melanie, is that is that, has that been like through the course of your career or what you've seen or even in, in discussion with your colleagues? Has that been one of the uh, more unique elements or, or, or one of the more unexpected or new elements of this pandemic was the was the politics infusing itself into healthcare was that a first for you and a lot of your colleagues? I think for sure what what Dr. Gibney just shared I think is 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 likely very true. There were a lot more political uh, undertones in in the prairies um, across the country. I mean, we've all kind of seen our fair share of. Uh, politicization of this issue. Sure. Um, I think a lot of it is now being seen um, when it comes to the nursing shortage overall in the country. Uh, and in addition to um, critical care nursing shortage, I think it's all kind of coming into the conversations now. So I definitely do think that um, politics are getting a lot more mixed in uh, into this public health issue. 
and and it is causing some certainly some concerns because uh, this is our you know it's our working environments, um, it's our staffing, um, and I mean this this virus is not going away. It's not gone. Well, I want to um, ask I want to ask you both about that, but Melanie, you just in follow up, you've already mentioned at least twice in this interview the nursing shortage, and uh, I want to I want to remind people of your credentials. You've got a, a graduate degree in intensive care nursing. You practiced for 10 years. You're a faculty lecturer at McGill. You're past president of the Canadian Association of Critical Care Nurses. Like you understand what's going on. Uh, how do you address a nursing shortage? It's not just, you know, people didn't like Jason Kenney in Alberta, so Alberta can't find nurses. Or the former health minister yelled at a doctor on his driveway, so all the nurses are leaving. Uh, this sounds to me to be a national problem. Uh, how do you address it? Um, I mean, I think a lot of the reasons why nurses leave is always related to the working environment, the working conditions, um, staffing uh, ratios, like safe stash, staffing ratios. I think a lot of nurses throughout the pandemic felt very distressed because they could not provide the quality of care that they were trained to provide. And that is excessively distressing. Um, and so living with kind of that moral injury is, is quite a challenge. Um, so a lot of nurses uh, either intend to, to leave um, their job and even the profession. Um, so those numbers have significantly increased. And so that is going to contribute to this nursing shortage. We had it before. Um, it will just get worse. It has gotten worse and it will continue to get worse. Um, but certainly we look, we have to really look at a systems approach for this because it is in relation to working environments um, and to our working conditions that, that we have um, in, this, in the public health system. Haas is watching us live on YouTube, says when government controls the system, uh, politicization is inevitable. Dean wonders how many nurses left due to vaccination policy. I don't know. What do you think, Melanie? Do you have some insight into that? Would that, would that have been a significant number? I actually I'm not sure. And the reason why I'm not sure is because we have very, very little data for nurses, ah. uh, nurses being public health workers. It is excessively difficult to track their movement, um, you know, where they go or if they leave. So we don't actually have uh, these numbers that are um, easily accessible. So we don't really know um, how many nurses have left exactly. We could get a, a general idea, but we don't know exactly. We don't know how many per year really come into the profession. So it's excessively difficult for us to really have a strong uh, human resource planning uh, when it comes to nursing. But Noel, uh, we just don't have this data at all. Sorry to step on your toes there, Melly. Uh, Noel, we, we don't really have data information on very much now, do we? I mean, like if, if, I mean it's one of the challenges uh, that, that, that certainly we've found in writing the report is, is, is getting good data is extremely difficult uh, on this. And it, it, it is inevitably going to be a couple of years late because that, that, that's the way that health information generally operates in, in Canada. And I think we will be getting significantly more information over the next number of months and years uh, that I think will be, be fascinating to see. Uh, I mean, we, we do know that in, in terms of the numbers that, that have died because of COVID, it's at about 45,000 since the pandemic started. And, and that's, that's exactly the same number of Canadians that died in, in World War II. But we also know that that's a significant undercount. Um, and, 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 and I think that it, 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 it's something just, I think, for people to, to think about because we keep seeing uh, uh, comments on websites that 
well, it's, it's a hoax, it's uh, no worse than flu, etc. Pandemic is very real and, and uh, certainly quite lethal for a lot of people and not just those over 70. In our ICUs, we've had significant numbers of people in their uh, mid-40s, 50s and 60s who have become very seriously ill and died. And I wonder if it's maybe our fault as as storytellers and talk hosts and, and, and people with with, you know, opportunities to amplify messages that maybe those stories haven't been told enough. It's a delicate balance. You'll remember Alberta's premier. Uh, I, I don't know what I, I guess I can try to give him the benefit of the doubt what he was trying to say. But he he would report. You remember this about a year ago in a news conference. And he said it's worth pointing out that the average age of people that are dying from COVID-19 is like 84. And he's and everyone said, well, what, what what's the point of you saying that? Like, are you trying to suggest that the lives don't have value or they already live there? Whatever. But but I guess I kind of get what he was maybe trying to get at. But if more of us were pointing out that, listen, like a 36-year-old mother just died of COVID, a 42-year-old, you know, single guy that just got back from traveling just died of COVID, people might wake up. I don't know. I mean, I'm looking around right now, and I think I mean, in this report, we got to be careful on talk shows like this. We don't get too into the numbers because people's heads start to swim and the numbers bang around. But we do know that disproportionately the number of people or the, the, the hospital population, let's say people hospitalized, let alone in the ICU, disproportionately higher if they're unvaccinated or undervaccinated, right? But I take a look at this, for example, in our home province of Alberta, the leadership race for the Conservative Party, and it's a competition between a lot of the candidates to see how low they'll go in refusing to endorse any of these mandates or refusing to encourage people to get the boosters right like you've even you've even got the the candidate that's supposed to be one of the reasonable ones alberta's now former finance minister travis taves saying two shots is enough enough is enough like buddy's not a doctor i mean does that noel does that drive you nuts it, it, it honestly does drive me nuts ryan because it, it's entirely unsupported by by the facts well, we know for example that people who come to hospital with severe covid are basically six, they're more six times more likely to come to hospital if they're unvaccinated and 12 times more likely to end up in the ICU if they're unvaccinated. Many of these politicians are also concerned about finance. We know, for example, that a, a COVID admission to ICU based on the other Canadian Health Informatics Institute data, it costs $50,000 per admission for COVID patients to ICU. That money could be better spent doing hips, knees, etc. if it was available. But as long as our hospitals keep being filled up with unvaccinated people who have COVID, it's going to be really hard for us to catch up on the big backlog of these surgical cases that has built up not just in Alberta, but around the country. I always, uh, Melanie, I don't know about you, but when we're talking about this, I mean, I was so horribly naive when this whole thing started. We thought, you know, two weeks to flatten the curve type thing. <laughs> Me and my buddies thought, oh, this could be a wild couple of months. I mean, we had no idea. Here we are. Ta- people are talking about sixth wave, seventh wave. Uh, one of the th- points I think it's important to make here is that this report, I mean, the impact of, of COVID on ICUs, it, it's a different ballgame now because there is a vaccine. More and more people are getting vaccinated. We've made some pro Progress there, but but this is not necessarily just a retrospective. This isn't just a look back, right? The COVID chapter is closed, and now we can begin to understand its impact. Like it's still happening, right? Absolutely, and I mean, 
the entire like critical care team, they've been working hard at it since March, 2020. They have not stopped. Um, and even, you know, in between waves, the reality is we were trying to catch up on different surgeries. Um, so there hasn't been any, uh, any break for, for any of the critical care team members. And I think now they're all very afraid of this sixth or seventh wave that's coming, depending what province you're in, um, because it's not, not, you know, not clear that it's endemic yet. Um, and so we are certainly concerned. A lot of nurses are absolutely, well, actually most critical care nurses are just completely exhausted, um, but they know that this isn't the end, that they, that, you know, this virus is not gone um, and that we're going to have to continue um, caring for patients that come into ICUs with COVID. Uh, Dr. Gibney, let me ask you a personal question. How, how do you conduct, I mean, you, you, you know, both of you obviously are uh, hyper aware of all of the information out there. You're studying this, you get it. Uh, when you're out and about in your daily routine, uh, how are you conducting yourself? Like, are you still fully, you know, KN95 mask and, you know, hand sanitizing everywhere, staying away from public gatherings? Um, I don't begrudge people that went to the, you know, a big example, the Calgary Stampede over the past two weeks. People are saying it felt so good to be back out there, felt so good to be celebrating again. There are mental health impacts to that in a positive sense. There are positive economic impacts to that, to be sure. But a lot of people still, I know, are having a difficult time wrapping their minds around it. How about you personally? If I go anywhere that's crowded, I, I, I always have a mask in, in my pocket and wear it in crowded areas. Um, I, I tend to, if I go to a restaurant, to try to go to the outdoor area as much as possible. And um, it, the challenge, of course, now is, is traveling. And, and obviously, if you're in an airport, uh, wear a mask. On a plane, you have to wear a mask. Uh, I, I recently just uh, visited our daughter, and my wife and I visited our daughter who's in, in, in Boston. And um, the planes, I think, were, were generally safe. Uh, the, the restaurants in Boston were, as, as it turned out, very crowded. And uh, one had a sense, really, that COVID, despite the statistics for Massachusetts, is, is, is still very real there. But the sense is, is that, well, this is past. Let's, let's get on with our lives. And so I think that's probably what's driving this seventh wave that's involving many places in the States and also now in Canada and is likely to come here, I would suspect, in August and early September. And, and I think that like, anecdotally, and I'm not the medical expert, uh, certainly, but I, I think like I just see it all around me. People are less afraid to get sick now. People are just less afraid to contract COVID. Melanie, how about you? How, how, how does your daily routine uh, stack up against what it may have looked like a year ago or two years ago. How are, how are you wrapping your mind around it? Um, I'm, I'm pretty much the same as, as Dr. Gibney. Anywhere crowded um, or anywhere in a closed space, I still wear a mask. Mm. Grocery store or whatever it is, I still wear a mask. Um, I try to avoid restaurants unless it's uh, I'm able to sit outdoors. Um, and I still minimize my gatherings. I think that I'm just anecdotally I'm seeing around me all my, I guess, friends, family that did not ever get COVID are all getting it now. So I could just see how easily transmissible it is. Um, and so, so I'm still protecting myself. I'm still being very careful because uh, that seventh wave is going to come because a lot of us are are not maybe being as careful as uh, as we should be. Yeah, to say the least. Like I think it's. I, I was just, you know, at, at an event the other day, little guy summer camp related event. And there was one family masked up 
And they kind of stuck out like a sore thumb. And to me, I, I was just it just got me thinking. I was just thinking six months back, eight months back, every single person in that room. And I mean, it's a huge room, but there were probably 150 people in there. Every single person would have been wearing a mask. Right. And you, you do see people kind of getting out of the and I get it. Like I can understand how humans are wired. We want to move past it. We want it to be done. It's how it's how we react as human beings in many challenging circumstances, not just health related. Uh, but at the same time, we, we hear these warnings from health professionals that the numbers are still high. There's the seventh wave looming. And I, I'm just trying to, you know, as a talk host and as a citizen, wrap my mind around it. Let me ask you both this in closing. We appreciate your time. Uh, what's one thing? Melanie, we'll start with you. One thing you really want the general public to take from this report that we're discussing uh, that you co-authored for the Royal Society of Canada. What's one thing you want to leave us thinking about? I think probably the impact that this pandemic has um, has had on the healthcare workers, uh, especially the critical care teams, uh, how that impact is still ongoing, and that um, healthcare workers really do need that support, that additional support that we haven't really had, um, both of being feeling valued, but also uh, mental health supports that are really required for nurses and for other uh, all the other members of the critical care team. Um, I think that would be really the biggest thing that that it has had a huge impact and that is going to have an impact on um, staffing. Um, you know, we, we came into this discussion talking about those a thousand beds. The reality is you need four full time nurses to cover one ICU bed. So that would mean an additional four thousand critical care nurses and there are 20,000 in the country. So um, we, we would need a lot more nurses and there is a shortage and the mental health impact of this pandemic has really worsened the shortage. Mm, I appreciate that. Uh, Dr. Gibney, in closing, one thing for us to walk with today. I, I think that the most important thing to consider is that the pandemic isn't over, uh, that there will be other ways and, and that we, we do need to, to uh, res respect COVID and uh, as these waves come through, to behave in an appropriate manner, to mask. Uh, I, I also believe, though, that we need to look at the quality of our indoor air and in schools, uh, public buildings, that we need to improve the uh, the air quality significantly by filtration. Um, and it, 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 that is going to take time and money, but it's going to do a lot more than uh, all of the hand washing that we're doing and all of the cleaning while it's great. It's not going to make a lot of difference because COVID is in the air around us. And that's why masking is, is so valuable when you're in uh, tight spaces with a lot of people. That's uh, Dr. Noel Gibney, uh, Professor Emeritus, University of Alberta, uh, Melanie Goche, RN, also joining us out of McGill University. Thanks to the both of you, not just for the report, but for your time and insights this morning on Real Talk. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Yeah, you bet. Um, I think that uh, this is interesting to see. We're getting comments online uh, in our live chat on YouTube in particular, like Tony, for example, she says, to be honest, I need to get back to being diligent and wearing my mask when I'm out in public. I see a lot of people rocking like they've got their masks still hanging from their like the, the signal lever on their steering column in their car. They got the mask still hanging from the, the rear view mirror on the windshield. I see some people doing this where they they wear it like around their neck. Like, yeah, I'm still rocking it. But, you but know, it's not about the nose. But I'm cool with not rocking it as well. Most of the time, I always have mine in my back pocket. I just keep it there just in case. And me and my wife are the same way. If she's more diligent than I am, if we go into say 
say the the grocery store or whatever and it's packed she'll put it on and i know okay that's my cue she keeps me she keeps me honest yeah and i'm not i'm not gonna bullshit i'm not gonna lie like i've it's it's pretty rare that i'm wearing a mask these days to be honest um i've been in a couple circumstances where that it just felt tight Mm-hmm. Like uh, a person who was claustrophobic may have felt that way anyway in that type of scenario. And I go, ah, this feels like one where I should mask up. But mm-hmm. but I'll be honest. And this is not health advice. I'm just this is real talk. Um, you know, having had my, you know, two shots, my booster and the mm-hmm. fourth one coming. But, uh, you know, I've, I've kind of felt like, you know, we've done what we we're going to do. And, of course. and, you know, more the more the population's vaccinated and whatever. And it, and it has impacted whether or not I've been wearing my mask. A hundred percent. And I think we got to this point where we felt safe. Definitely. I did. And then look what happened to me a few weeks ago. Yeah, I you got- finally got it after all and that it be- time. It beat the and shit out prob- of you, didn't it? Oh, my God. Like, I didn't understand. Of course, I understand that it, it poses a health risk and it's it's it, it could put people in grave danger, especially older people. But, man, I was like, if I had asthma or any kind of respiratory yeah. uh, problem. I was literally couldn't get off the couch for three days, like fever, hot sweats, you know, vomiting, couldn't eat anything. All, you know, types of cold medicines were not helping at all. They were only helping me to sleep a few hours. So it is, it is no joke. It is. And you're is, for people that know you're, uh, I think people know if they, uh, tune into the show regularly you're a real optimist you're a real you're, you're a real positive guy yeah. you know, johnny's the type of guy where i'll say like hey man can you handle this can, can you do this this and this for the shows I'm a yes then, man people call well you're, yeah. you're, you're like yeah absolutely and then you find out that john stayed up until three in the morning like hammering all this workout <laughs> but you, i can but, do that but you're a guy that'll that will very rarely admit when something's taxing you and when you let me know how covid was impacting you, you knew. I, I knew yeah because for you to say uh, I am getting walloped by this thing. Yeah. Uh, I knew it was legit. Yeah. I, I've, I've just launched uh, an unofficial, unscientific Twitter poll uh, on my personal account at Ryan Jesperson. You can follow me there. You can also follow the show at Real Talk RJ. And I'm asking you, are you still wearing a mask in public? I wanted to keep the question simple. Uh, I literally put the poll out one minute ago. We already have 85 votes, so we're probably going to see a bunch on this one. We'll review it tomorrow. I'll leave it open for 24 hours. Uh, so far, uh, with 85 votes, uh, the leading number, 39% of respondents say it depends. Yeah. I think that will probably I think that's be... that's where we're at now, right? You know, it depends, people yeah. are saying. Uh, early in the poll, thirty, just under 32% are saying yes. So let's say right around one in three people are still wearing a mask in public, although that just changed. Look Live at that. Live update. <laughs> and yeah, and then now it's 133 votes. This thing's going to see 2,000. Yeah, it'll see a lot. But anyway, no. Now no is at 36%. So we'll see. Uh, we'll see where that goes. If you're listening to this, the podcast later in the day, most of you will be. We encourage you to check out and participate in our unscientific, unofficial Twitter poll on my profile at Ryan Jesperson. I love uh, how you always put the disclaimer. <laughs> well, I, well, I want perspective. I want yeah. people to understand. People will say, well, like, you know, these Twitter polls aren't, uh, you know, it's not like, it's not, there's no sort of like a benchmark. There's no control. There's not. Well, yeah, we know. It, we know. It's just <laughs> fucking Twitter. But it provides some interesting insight. Uh, I saw a couple of you asking if this report is available publicly. It absolutely is from the Royal Society of Canada. And you can find it just on our Real Talk RJ tweet. We've posted the link. And then I will also put the link to it in the description on the YouTube episode and on the podcast. We want to make it nice and Mm -hmm. easy for you. Uh, we've got a whole bunch of you uh, making your comments here in the live chat, which is uh, you know interesting to see wh- where you're all stacking up or how you're making your decisions. Karen says, on my way home you know, to the city after May long weekend, she says, I stopped in Airdrie, Alberta for lunch. I forgot my mask in the car. 
she says, but I did grab takeout from a packed restaurant four days later. Boom, COVID. That from Karen. I saw somebody I follow on social media just the other day saying that, you know, they sent their kids to summer camp. They said that their daughter was the only one that was wearing a mask in the whole summer camp. Wow. And uh, they, had, they had asked the camp organizers to, to take the kids outside for lunchtime. Uh, the parents said that they were concerned. This was a, a Twitter thread from this mom. I don't have it in front of me, but she she was basically saying, like, we, we were worried that we were going to embarrass our daughter, you know, that she was the only one wearing the mask. We asked him to go outside. She says that there's now been, um, I don't know if I can use the word outbreak, but she says several of the kids in that summer camp have now come down with COVID, not our daughter. She says, so, you know, it feels like for us it was worth it, right? So kind of interesting Uh, to know where people are at. And we'll review that unofficial unscientific Twitter poll tomorrow. Charles Adler coming up in just a second. I want to tell you about some takeout I grabbed uh, yesterday. It was on my way home. At a gathering outside, meeting with some friends. Texted my beautiful wife, said, what do you have to do for dinner? She says, our little guy Wyatt is choosing, and Wyatt chooses pizza. Well, I knew where I was going next. I went to the Friesen Brothers in South Edmonton and grabbed a father dough pizza. If you're watching on YouTube, you can see this. This is from the cab of my truck. I had to get a photo before I started demolishing this thing. You walk in, you place your order. That pizza goes into the Forno oven. Ten minutes later, the little pager they give you, it buzzes. Your pizza's ready, and you are out the door. Fabulous quality materials made from fresh, never frozen this is just one of the reasons why everybody's talking about Friesen Brothers. 16 locations across Alberta, still family-owned. They're closing in on their 70th anniversary as a company. Still family-owned at Friesen.com. Hey, you know what? I'm going to read two more mentions, and I'm just realizing as I'm doing this that these are all family-owned businesses. I love this. That includes Landscape Edmonton, a custom landscape builder with over 20 years of on-the-ground experience in Edmonton area. That's Eden Landscaping at landscapeedmonton.ca. Eden does the modern design. They do the natural design. They do the stunning stonework. Of course, excavation, water mitigation. You need you know something that might feel a little bit boring. Uh, we just need a sump pump. We just need weeping tile. Whatever. They can do that. You say we want these edible garden boxes, planters, a fire pit, an outdoor kitchen. Mike's your guy. You can find him again. Eden Landscaping at landscapeedmonton.ca. Proudly family owned for more than 20 years. And our friends at Local Environmental, same deal across the prairies. They're giving you the service that the so-called big guys, the multinationals, you're not getting that from them. You know, you got a problem with those guys. You call the 1-800 number. You get a machine. Get in line. Maybe someone will call you back from who knows where. With local environmental services, it's a first-name basis. Them and their clients. Across Alberta, Saskatchewan, whether you're looking for water hauling, vacuum truck services, front loader roll-off bins, portable toilets, fencing, calling all festival organizers, you'll find them online at localenvironmental.com. And don't forget, Local, presenting Trash Talk right here on the show every Friday. We were fired up last Friday. It was like all politics all the time, last Trash Talk. Talk at ryanjesperson.com is where you can get your rant off your chest. Well, every Monday, it's an absolute pleasure to connect with the RTDNA Lifetime Achievement Award winner, the Emmy Award winning talk show host, Charles Adler, who joins us from Manitoba this morning. Are you crushing a beer right now? Did I just see a beer bottle? Is that what that is? Oh, no, no, no. Hang on, hang on, hang on. This is, it's elitist water. Oh, well, yeah, yes. Yeah. It's, uh, it's got a, 
It's got a foreign name. It's got an Italian name. It's it's a panache carbonated mineral water uh, from uh, from Italy. Okay. No one would blame you because it's already like ten thirty in Winnipeg and it's summer and like you, you could have. I oh, didn't no, know. It's just, you... it, it's just that ever ever since I've been called an elitist, which I've, I you know I never grew up being. <laughs> I grew up as the the, the the Taylor's son on the wrong side of the track. So <laughs> so I'm I'm loving this idea that I somehow elite. So I I have fun now. I uh, I rent expensive cars and I I drink. Uh, <laughs> Mineral water. <laughs> what I don't know what you drive. What do you, what does Charles? No, you, can, I don't. you can learn a lot about a person by what they drive. What do you drive yeah. in these days? I drive what we. Uh, here, here's a politically incorrect term. Remember when we called certain cars plain Jane? I bet you can't say that anymore. But I drive a very, I very, I drive a very plain Jane, mash appeal, uh, made in North America car. That's all I'll say about it because. For, uh, for security reasons, it wouldn't be wise for me to yes. you know, point out the model and license plate and all the rest of it. Fair enough. But Charles Adler is not making his way between Vancouver and Winnipeg in a Maserati. That's not what's happening. No, no, no. I I, 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 you know, I don't mind every now and then uh, someone wants to throw me into one of those. But I've made a, a point for the last number of years of, of trying to know my place. And as far as my, my place is concerned, it's uh, it's common sense, common folks. That's how I lived that's the kind of neighborhood I live in and uh, it goes on and on. I just, I don't do that. Um, I don't do that celebrity thing. Cause I've, I've always often said to people like, I don't want to uh, do something in terms of radio podcasting, whatever. I, I don't want to do something I don't want to listen to. And then nothing turns me off more than, uh, you know, successful people in our business bragging about uh, all the celebs that they're bumping into at their parties and the, the kind of cars they're driving and all sure. that. It just, that just turns me right off. If I, if I can't speak for, for regular folks, What's the point? I'm not going to be able to speak for regular folks if I'm living like a, you know, living large. Uh, celebrity picked a fight with you a few days ago, and I've been watching intently as yeah. uh, gold medalist and Stanley Cup champion Theron Flurry called you out by name from his Twitter account, sicking his quarter million followers on you. Uh, and uh, you basically clapped right back at him, and that's when I pulled up my chair, popped some popcorn, and said, we'll see what happens next. So what's the up-to-the-minute report? What, what, what do you make of uh, what Theo Fleury had to say about you, Warren, Kinsella, and others? I don't understand. I mean, Theo was a, a great hockey player. I, mean, I was I was a fan, genuine fan of uh, Theron Fleury. But uh, you know, I don't know why a guy who's really great at hockey – is going to try to go out on a limb and, and and try to be great at medical science when people are are dying. I, I I just don't understand why he would do that, and I really don't understand why he would behave like some sort of conservative groupie or troll and suggest that. And especially because Theo knows me, I don't know why he would think, oh well, I'm going to say this or tweet that because you know some you know somebody's going to send me five dollars from the Liberal Party or Justin Trudeau is going to you know uh, do what blow kisses at me or, 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 or like, like show up at, at, at some event that I'm at and, and be a groupie of mine. I mean, I just don't, I, I've never understood that troll stuff. And, you know, having been sort of in some senses an insider, cause I, I, I know the, the people who are in leadership. I know the people who are, uh, you know, involved in, in the digital campaigns and a lot of other things that are going on. I mean, I'm not, a, I'm not a stranger to this. I was born at night, but, but not last night, or this is, you know, in, in, in honor of the stampede that just wrapped up, you know, this isn't my first rodeo. So for a guy like Theo Fleury, who knows a lot about my life and knows who I am and knows who I 
pay attention to. But most important, notice that I, I don't suck up to anybody and I don't I don't have voice in my head going, well, I better say this and I better say that because, you know, Charlie's counting on this and Dickie's counting. I'm not a grifter. That's not who I am. And Theo knows that. And Theo and I had tons of respect uh, for each other. Uh, he called me uh, his big brother and I called him my little brother. And all of a sudden he's this he's impersonating some some stupid, worthless troll. And I mean, I, I don't care what he does on Tucker Carlson. I, I don't I don't care about this, but that's that's his business. But I don't know why he wants to get me um, involved in that and, and pretend that he doesn't know what he does know. That's yeah. just, that's, well, that's so silly. here's the tweet. He says uh, he, he quotes a, a Warren Kinsella article that ran in the Sun Papers. Uh, yeah. The headline reads anti-science, anti-decency, the strange way forward for some conservatives. And we'll get into that in just a moment. But Theo tweets that Warren Kinsella actually believes the bullshit coming out of his mouth. So does Charles Adler and Don Braid. They bow at the Trudeau altar, lapping up scraps of currency called money. Uh, the thing is, I mean, I don't really kind of know where to start with that. By the way, did he really call you his big brother? Is that a legitimate thing? Like, yeah, he used actually... to call me big brother, and I called him. Okay, my so you guys had a, you guys had, had like a friendship. Like, you guys had a relationship. We had, we had a friendship, but you know, I feel silly about this because I come on here and say, you know, Danielle Smith used to be my friend. She was. You know, Jason Kenny was my friend. She was. I mean, I'm almost. I'm. I'm worried now about make. I'm worried about being your friend. I'm worried that that someday you're gonna basically fall off the turnip truck, and I'm gonna have to say, well, look, uh, you know, I'm Mike Adler's son. I got to be honest. Ryan Jesperson was a good friend of mine, but but he fell off the truck. Yeah. Well, let me let me play something from my conversation with Danielle last week. Okay, and and I want to provide some context. So the clip, you know, there's nothing worse, Chuck. You know this than, than poaching six seconds out of something and saying, "Look, <laughs> no, I want to give people the background. I want to be fair." Yeah. So yeah. let me tee this up, and then we'll get your comment on it. So I'm talking to Danielle Smith, sure. who had just, you know, she had to come up. All the candidates for United Conservative Leadership in Alberta have to come up with 175 grand, three times 50 grand plus a twenty five thousand dollar good behavior bond. They have three points on the calendar they have to drop 50k she did 175 all at once to send in a message your in yeah. your face it's a it's a flex right so yeah, i'm asking smart, her about that move. yeah i'm asking her about that and then it evolves to conversation about her upcoming it's now since happened rally with theron flurry theron flurry was talking about you know, globalist schemes and, and and pedophiles being able to track people through the uh, vaccine not, microchip i mean absolutely bananas kind of stuff yeah. Anyway, we'll get Charles come in on this in just a second, but here's Danielle on Real Talk. Putting that 175 grand all up front at once, uh, for, for background, for people that don't know, you got to come up with 50, and then another 50, and then another 50, and then there's kind of a 25,000 good behavior bond, right? That's how that goes? Yep. Um, you paid the 175 all up front, and, and people have said it was a bit of a flex. It sent a bit of a message that you're not having problems getting signatures or coming up with the cash. Was it on purpose to pay it all at once? Yep. <laughs> I want people to know I can raise money. I want people to know I have support. I want people to know that we're going to bring this party together. That's what this whole exercise is about. We have seen a number of different conservative groups set up and a lot of, I think, despair among the conservative movement looking for another option. And I want people to see that I'm able to bring people back into this movement so that we can defeat Rachel Notley in the next election. And that's what I'm concerned about. And you and I have always had frank, direct conversations on air and off air and and. To a certain degree, I want to believe that you care about building that big movement and bringing people back to the conservative movement and building the so-called big tent party that conservative leaders provincially and federally have been trying to do uh, with varying degrees of success for the past number of decades. But it comes back to like 
inviting Theo Fleury to your rallies. Like, that's just going to be a non-starter for so many mm-hmm. people, right? Like, rubbing shoulders with Arthur Pavlovsky. Like, that's a non-starter for so many people. You know as well as I do. You can't reconcile the two. Like, mainstream Albertans. I mean, I like I, I have more than 225 comments to, to go to here, but here's one. You know, Kathy says, with Danielle's current platform, if she were to become leader of the UCB, how would she think she'd be received by any moderate conservative or anyone further left than that on the spectrum. Taking the party further right will ensure they don't win the next election. It's risky business, don't you think? I guess you and I always had a bit of a different approach. I I always try to take the view that I can find common ground with virtually anyone. I don't necessarily will I agree with 100% of uh, 100% of the guests I had on the air for instance. Yeah, me neither. But I always wanted to make sure that I presented to my audience all, the full range of perspectives so that they could draw their own judgments. So that has always been my approach is that I will talk to anyone. I will talk to anyone. Chuck? Yeah. Well, if, if you you say you will talk to anyone, that's one thing on a on a talk show, especially if you, you challenge them. I love that. And by the way, just I want to preface something. You know, it's clear that when I watch uh, Danielle Smith communicate, she still is the person that I've always respected the hell out of. I always thought that Danielle Smith would be premier someday, but I thought she'd be premier as a PC because that's what that's what she was. And I still in, in my brain believe that that's what she really is. She's such a strong communicator. She can communicate anybody in the business. That's why I don't understand why she does these sideshows with Theo Fleury and, and anti-vax and, and all the rest. Of it. She, she doesn't she doesn't need to do any of that. But as, as far as I'll, I'll talk to anyone, it's one thing if you're doing a talk show. She wasn't doing a talk show. She was doing a, a political rally and she was bringing him on as a as a supporter of hers. And he was effusive. He was all over being supportive of the campaign, but he was also all over saying a bunch of things that Danielle Smith obviously wasn't going to challenge. But if he does say all of those things, and 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 I don't even know how much of this we want to get into, but I guess the thought thing that, you know, Leo, Theo and I for, for many years talked off the air and on the air about sexual abuse survivors and how important it was to say the right things and to coach them and to inspire them to think of themselves as survivors and not victims. And here it is, Theo doing this this thing that some conservatives keep wanting to do. This we're a victim, you know, we're a victim of the CBC. We're we're, we're a victim of the, you know, the, the 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 George Soros and the WEF and all these stupid conspiracies. And 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 the smartest conservatives I've ever known have never done any of that, you know. Um, but anyway, um, Theo goes into this business of. Uh, the psychiatrist uh, has told him that it's okay for him to feel that uh, vaccine mandates are the same as as abuse, as the abuse that he suffered. And I'm thinking, okay, if, if that's how he genuinely feels, that's none of my business. That's none of Danielle Smith's business. But it, 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 I think it would be Danielle Smith's business to say that's that's how Theo feels. But I, 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 I personally am not trying to put the message out while I oppose the mandates and I oppose Justin Trudeau vigorously and that's a right and that's terrific that's what she should be doing that's that's terrific but to 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 just sort of let go of this this idea to un, unchallenge that what justin trudeau is doing uh with vaccine mandates is the equivalent of what graham james was doing to theo flurry i'm sorry that that is so like over the top i i feel uncomfortable having to discuss it except we're we're in a we're in a a very privileged position here, Warren, where we, we, we have this audience that's wondering what's really going on? What's the real talk? What's really going on in Chuck's heart? And I can handle a whole lot of BS that politicians and, and Theo Fleury may want to throw around. 
I cannot handle because I have interviewed, including Theo. I've interviewed hundreds and hundreds of sexual abuse survivors over the years, and I do not want to rattle them. I don't want to traumatize them and re-traumatize them. And I don't want to have any of them thinking that going for a, a vaccine, which is something that I obviously believe in, is, is the equivalent of, of meeting with, uh, with sexual abuse. It's just, like I said, I'm, as you can tell, I'm uncomfortable talking about it. It's just so egregious and outrageous. And I'm thinking, you know, Danielle Smith, who's someone I've had respect for all my life. I mean, she's the one I wanted to, who, to replace me. And she did. When I, when I was bailing from a show called Global Sunday, I just couldn't handle the, the travel anymore. And I wanted Danielle Smith to uh, replace me. Uh, Troy Reeb did for a little bit interim, but then Danielle Smith was my replacement. I remember my, my dad being uh, so proud of that show and, and Danielle and everything. So it just, you know, this business I had a great relationship with her, a great relationship with Theo Fleury. And these, these people are, are doing, Theo doesn't need to do this and Danielle doesn't need to do this. So help me with this, Ryan, because it's I'm not, not, not looking for you to, to therapize me, but this really, really bothers me. Yeah, I mean, I can't... Uh... <laughs> against my better judgment a while ago i listened to an interview that a, that a relatively popular hockey podcast did with with theo and uh like i just uh, i was listening to it and and the uh the hosts uh, who are great hockey players um are piss poor interviewers in in the sense that there were so many things being said like like the the assertions the claims were absolutely wild um, like the microchip stuff, the the Klaus Schwab, everyone's going to take your money. That it's going to be a communist or socialist world, you know, an attempt at a utopia that will leave people in poverty and starvation. I mean, it's just like bananas and bonkers. And uh, and I was just listening to that interview, going like, it it would be funny if it wasn't so dangerous. And the thing that's kind of really concerning me now, bigger picture, is this isn't just like. Daniel Smith and the United Conservative Party in Alberta, it seems to me like conservative movements uh, around the world, quite frankly. But even if you look at the at the federal race, the conservative leadership race federally in Canada uh, right now, and you look at the messages that are resonating and with whom they are resonating and, and what people are believing, it's just um, I think that it's driving away a lot of reasonable, pragmatic I hesitate to use the word normal people because what's normal and who cares about normal, but I'm talking about people that you'd let look after your kids. You know what I mean? People that you can oh, yeah, trust, yeah, yeah, like people that you'd want to be your neighbors. Like those kind of people are going, well, I, I'm, I don't really necessarily want to affiliate myself with this party. And it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to vote for another party, Charles. It means that they might just not vote. And then you're handing over political power uh, to people who are achieving it through dubious means, and then the outcome is pretty damn concerning. But <laughs> the last place I expect for something like this to happen with Danielle Smith, because as I say, she is so strong a communicator, and she knows her conservative principles. She knows how to fight a conservative fight in Alberta. She can easily uh, defeat the NDP in enough parts of Alberta. I don't want to say it's a no-brainer. I don't want to, I'm not trying to disrespect Rachel Notley, but the Daniel Smith that I know can clock the NDP without any of this stuff. And that's why I just, I, I just can't get it through my head, whether, whether it's national or in this case, we're, we're talking about provincial, the conservatives don't have to do this nationally. I mean, Trudeau's negatives are, are, are high. We're going into a recession. I hope it's a soft landing recession, not a hard landing. But nevertheless, Trudeau's been around for what, what is perceived to be a very, very long time now. They're extremely vulnerable. 
the, the Danielle Smith that I knew for many years could be someone who defeats a Trudeau or certainly defeats a Nautilus. So I honestly don't understand why they, I, I understand this part of it. I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to be naive here. I know that this stuff gets clicks for sure. Mm-hmm. It gets lots of attention. I get that. And it also raises a lot of money because the people who are committed to, let's just call it the, the wacky stuff, they're also writing checks. You know, Danielle Smith uh, rounded up $175,000 very quickly. Uh, she's extremely talented. Maybe, maybe I'm trying to bend over backwards to be fair here. Maybe she feels that doing that stuff is a faster way to get to the 175. But I refuse to believe that Danielle Smith is a kook or a crank or anything, but a really whip smart person who I think has, has has made some some choices that that she feels are are worth taking. And you know, there's also part of me that says, well, you know, maybe I don't know Danielle Smith very well. Maybe she is into this, call it, you know, conspiratorial stuff. But I mean, you know, we have a, another possible variant of a COVID that's that's all over the world, and I'm positive it's in North America. I'd need more confirmation of specifically where it is in in Canada. But you know, if this variant is anywhere near as virulent as the last one was, the last thing we need is any premier saying that she does not want um, to impose public health regulations. I'm not talking about lockdowns. I'm not talking about China. I'm talking about just some basics, like basics, like asking Ryan Jesperson and his family to wear masks when they go to the mall. Mm. And, and if Danielle Smith thinks that that is whatever you want to call it, you know, cuckoo bananas, conspiracy, hoax, whatever. If that's what she thinks, then frankly, she's not she's not qualified. I, I don't feel comfortable about saying this, but I have to. If, if she feels that public safety regulations are a horrible, wretched left-wing conspiracy and that she as premier does not believe in signing off on them, then that that's, that's, that's a bit of a disqualifier with all due respect, Danielle. I was talking to a, a couple of experts, uh, Melanie Goche, RN, and uh, Dr. Noel Gibney about this report for the Royal Society of Canada that talks about the strain that COVID's had, the pandemic's had on ICUs across the country, and contained in the report are some pretty interesting numbers. I don't think that this will really surprise anybody that's been paying attention, but this is according to the science table. These are numbers in Ontario, um, where unvaccinated people are currently, like as of the end of June, so you know within the last couple of weeks, uh, unvaccinated people are currently six times more likely to be hospitalized and 12 times more likely to require care in an ICU than a person who has received two or three vaccines and their booster shots. And so the report says, put simply, the best way to prevent ICUs from becoming overwhelmed by COVID infections again is to maintain a high level of immunity, including booster shots in the Canadian population. I think it's really important to point that out because a lot of politicians, particularly conservative politicians, are right now insisting that they will not support calls for boosters. They will not support vaccine mandates that require people to have more than the initial two. And I think that that's really important that these politicians are asked directly why or how they can support that position if we know what the outcome is. Let me throw something else at you, Charles, and then I'll get you to respond. An unofficial, unscientific Twitter poll. I've had it up for... Uh, coming up on 30 minutes. It's been up for 25 minutes. we got 670 votes. Uh, we're asking people, are you still wearing a mask in public? Right now, 41% say no. 31% say it depends. And 29% say yes. How about you? Where are you at with this? When I uh, go into a store, uh, you know, when I'm around the, the public, uh, I always wear a mask. And if you want to ask me if I ever 
uh, second guess uh, myself on that. Well, maybe maybe I second guess myself in this sense. Many people know who I am and in different parts of the country I go to. Uh, and I would feel it's in incredibly irresponsible for me not to wear a mask because I don't want anyone who's on the line about this to say, well, Charles Adler doesn't wear a mask. So why should I? I don't sure. want to I don't want to be that kind of Charles Adler. Uh, your thoughts on I mean, here's the thing. What I think is really important. And what we want to remind people, again, sometimes I go, is this too obvious what I'm saying? But I don't think it is, is that ICUs are not just COVID care units, right? Like ICUs are like if there's a bus crash or if there's a bad fire or if there's a, you know, a boat capsizes on one of the lakes where everybody's out right now enjoying the summer, that requires ICU capacity, right? Uh, this report finds that ICUs need to be able to remain at approximately 80% capacity, for the population to be safe, you know, for the resources to be in place. They say that ICUs across the country have been 90 to 100 percent capacity for for almost the last two years. And that should be cause for concern for everybody. It means delayed surgeries. It means that people are walking around in pain because they haven't been able to have their hip worked on or their knees replaced. I don't even think it's too much of a stretch. And I've said it before, Chuck, to point out that because of delayed surgeries due to COVID-19 and hospital strains, more and more people are living with pain, which means more and more people are using opioids, which, of course, inevitably is going to contribute to our other health crisis right now, which is the opioid crisis. I think you can draw a direct line. Uh, and this is something that I think more and more people need to take seriously and pay way more attention to. I just, you know, the thing is that if, look, if, if I didn't think that uh, various politicians and various uh, celebrities uh, saying that the vaccine's a hoax and that vaccine mandates are the second coming of Nazi Germany and all. If, if I didn't think that that was impacting on everything we're talking about, if I didn't think that that was impacting negatively on real human beings who need real help in the ICUs, if I didn't think it was impacting on our frontline workers in ICUs, God bless all of them. I, I know we're losing some for all of the self-evident reasons. I know some of them are developing, you know, mental, mental fatigue. I, I get all that. But if I didn't think that all of this stuff was impacting on it, I wouldn't be talking about it. I would be uh, not talking about it just like I don't talk about UFOs, just like I don't talk about a, a whole lot of things where I just don't have enough information, enough evidence uh, that I can you know, wrap my, my, my mind around. But I do have enough evidence now that the, the data is in. All of this conspiracy talk, all of this denialism, all of this convoyism, all of this is affecting real people. And uh, I you know, believe in living in a free country. And to me, it's impossible for us to live in a free country unless the guardrails are there. Democracy needs guardrails. We need strong military, strong police, strong firefighters, strong ambulance service. And yes, damn it, we need strong ICUs. Chaos is what helps tyranny. Chaos is what loses us our freedom. And right now, I really worry that there are certain people who are thriving on chaos. They're making a buck on it. They're, they're, they're making a political living on it. And chaos isn't just a talking point. Chaos is very real. We're being affected by it. I realize that there are certain people in, in authority who can't talk about it because they don't want to be frightening people. And I'm not here to frighten people. I'm just here to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And the truth is, this isn't just loose talk. This is loose talk that is affecting people, and yes, in some cases, killing them. You can find Charles Adler on Twitter, at Charles Adler. You'll find him here on Real Talk every Monday. It's always great to see your face, my man. Have an excellent week. Thanks a lot, Ryan. You got it.
Uh, of note, speaking of the convoy, speaking of those uh, Ottawa protests, you want to call it an occupation? Uh, this morning, Glenn McGregor reporting that uh, Justice Anne London Weinstein will grant bail uh, to the convoy organizer Pat King today after 150 days in custody. It's expected that he'll be released later today. It's Monday and will return to Alberta until his judicial pre-trial is scheduled. So there are some conditions. Obviously, Pat King has got to vacate the city of Ottawa within 24 hours. Uh, he has to reside with a surety in Alberta. He's got a no-contact order uh, with Tamara Litch and other organizers of that convoy, uh, unless in presence of counsel, in other words, unless he's with his lawyers working on his defense. No involvement in so-called freedom convoy activity. You will not find him on social media. If you see him on there, he's violating the terms of his bail, and he'll have a curfew from 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. So Pat King will be granted bail today after 150 days in custody. Uh, we're going to shine a light on some positive stories, positive reflections. Every Monday, Kubi Energy presents it. But before we do, I want to remind you, I saw a couple of people on the live chat saying, hey, this this poll, where can we find this poll on whether or not you're still wearing a mask in public? You can find it on Twitter, at Ryan Jesperson. That's my profile. That's where you can chime in. You know, on Twitter, uh, as well now, on John, Real Talk, Instagram, TikTok. We're pretty excited about that. Give us a follow at Real Talk RJ. Our official hashtag, Real Talk RJ, is powered by our friends at Park Power. Internet, electricity, natural gas is their game. And if you check out their website today, parkpower.ca, if you're Park Power curious, you'll be able to see the answers to some questions you may have, like how good is the service? How reliable are the utilities? Where does the power come from? You know, where does your internet come from? You know, what areas do you serve? Well, what are all these charges on my bill? Help me make sense of the administration charge. Will my distribution charge be lower if I switch to Park Power? The answer is yes, by the way. You can sign up at parkpower.ca. Make sure you use the promo code 2022-REALTALK to knock $70 off your first bill. Our friends at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park want to remind you, if you're looking to enjoy your day to the fullest, you don't feel like standing over your oven, you don't feel like standing over your grill, you want to let somebody else handle it, you burger believe it. There's six new reasons to crave DQ. It's their lineup of signature stack burgers, included the loaded steakhouse stacker, maybe my personal favorite. You can see it's got the bacon, the cheese, and that classic Dairy Queen onion ring on top. You can find these signature stack burgers, plus blizzards, ice cream cakes, dilly bars, and so much more at the Dairy Queens in Sherwood Park at Baseline Road and in Northwest Edmonton in Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, and Westmount. Well, our first show of the week every week, our friends at Kubi Energy give us an opportunity every Monday to focus on the positive news stories, to find the silver linings, to fill our buckets. We call it positive reflections. The first story that we want to share, this is a story of survival. This is fascinating. I love this. It was submitted to us from Lindsay. Uh, she sent us an email to talk at ryanjesperson.com. She says, I feel like this is a fit for positive reflections. Lindsay, we agree. Thank you. This is the story of a man known only as Ivan. Ivan survived 18 hours lost at sea by clinging to a beach ball. He was caught up in the powerful currents off the coast of Mighty Beach in Cassandra, Greece. Uh, friends who were worried about him going missing alerted the Coast Guard. 
Uh, but Ivan from North Macedonia was declared officially lost at sea. However, get this, his life miraculously saved when a child's beach ball floated toward him in the middle of the ocean. I mean, this is like Castaway with Tom Hanks. This is like Wilson the volleyball. This is wild. So Ivan clings to the ball to help him float until rescuers spot him 18 hours later, John. 18 hours later. This is absolutely unbelievable. Now, there is a sad element to this story. His friend Martin was also swept out to sea. They were swimming at the same time. He remains missing as of yesterday, but... Ivan's life was saved. As you can see, a photo of him posing with the ball. His dad and the mayor of Cassandra, Anastasia Chalkia, has been shared widely and around the world. Now, get this. The reason that's significant, the photo goes viral, and a mom who sees this story comes forward to say, I recognize that beach ball. No way. Her kids, she was with her kids, Trifon and Thanos. They're 11 and 6 years old. They were playing with that. It's their favorite beach ball on Ivgantis Beach on the Greek island of Lemnos on June 30th. John, 80 miles away, (laughs) 80 miles away, 10 days later, this beach ball floats past Ivan as he's literally clinging to life, treading water, lost at sea. Crazy. He told local media after the rescue that the ball was the only reason for his survival, despite the fact that it was only half inflated. How wild is that? I'm going to be carrying a beach ball with me everywhere now, (laughs) just in case for safety reasons. Can you imagine? Why do you have that ball with you, Johnny? Hey, you never know. You're lost at sea. And you're sitting there going, I think this is it for me. You're going to do everything you can to survive. Yeah. You're probably saying your prayers. First thing you do is look for something to grab onto because you know you're going to be floating out there. But you're in the middle of the freaking ocean. (laughs) And then the next thing you know, a beach ball from 80 miles away 10 days earlier. I think he's thanking his lucky stars. Absolutely amazing. And this one was passed along from Landon. And Landon, we love this story too. We had seen this video and I'm so glad you shared it. An elephant and her baby saved in Thailand after getting stuck in a large hole that had been excavated. This is an amazing ordeal. If you're watching this on YouTube, you can see that the rescue team's performing CPR on the mother elephant. The stress of this ordeal, enormous for her. Her baby had fallen into this manhole and she had stayed there to do what she could, but they couldn't get the baby out. It was a roadside drainage hole. Uh, Now, rescuers had to uh, provide some anesthesia to calm the mom down. She was receiving that medical care. She had, you know, become unconscious and obviously was having a medical incident. And the CPR worked, resuscitating the elephant. And when the mother was resuscitated, the the calf uh, began suckling on her. After, the mother regained consciousness. And eventually, they were able to make their way after three hours long, this rescue. It's Khao Yai National Park. And the veterinarian there, Dr. Chinaya, talked to Sky News about the incident, said despite the obstacles, the mother did not leave her baby's side. This experience touched our hearts and will be one of the most memorable rescues we've ever done. Ladies and gentlemen, 
survival stories here on this week's edition of Positive Reflections. I just got chills. Well, that's that my type of story. Absolutely right amazing. There. I, I love, love stories like that. Yeah. And it's the first time I've ever seen someone give CPR to an elephant, by the way. That was t- like jumping on its rib cage. I was and a then it, emotional and it works. Yeah. You can send us your positive reflection. It could be an international news story like these ones, and it could be something that happened in your own life, a random act of kindness, something your kids said to you, maybe something your neighbor did or something you did for your family. We want to hear about it. To talk at ryanjesperson.com, make sure you put positive reflections in the subject line. It's presented every week from our friends at Kubi Energy. You can get your free solar quote today at kubienergy.ca. We've got a great week of shows lined up for you. We're so grateful to hear from those of you tweeting at us, posting on Instagram, letting us know you're taking real talk on the road. Your summer road trips, you're using those to catch up on episodes you may have missed or to tune in live in the car using the Mixler live streaming audio app. You can find all the links at ryanjesperson.com. As mentioned, circle your calendar this Friday, a special edition Real Talk Roundtable. We're going to get into the important storylines around the papal apology as the Pope prepares to visit Canada in just a few days. Make it a great Monday. We'll talk soon. Real Talk is hosted by Ryan Jesperson. Executive producer, Josh Dunford. Technical producer, John Hicks. General manager, Katie Cook Shivers. Account coordinator, Lawrence Derlego. Human resources, Lena Shepard. Website design, Mike Johnston. Voiceover by me, Carrie Skelton. Real Talk's editorial board is Supriya Duvetti, Ahmed Ali, Brandy Morin, Anne Castleman, Corey Hogan, Harmon Candola. Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson. Member Emerita, Julie Rohr. Real Talk is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Salto, and Nakota Sioux, home to Métis settlements and the Métis Nation of Alberta. Real Talk is the flagship property of Relay Communications Group Incorporated. All rights reserved. For more, check out ryanjesperson.com.